by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. I think empathetic people make better policy because not only are you cautious about how policy impacts marginalized groups, but you're also asking the question of whose viewpoints are not even in this room. Because what so often happens, we all rally and get fired up when people are proposing things that are directly antagonistic against communities of color, against marginalized people more broadly. But what I found more often is that we are completely ignored. We're not even a part of the conversation. Our lived experiences didn't even come up. They didn't even think to discriminate about, against us because they don't think we are even worth being thought of or being centered in the, in the policy decisions that are being made. That's Representative Malcolm Kenyatta, representative from Pennsylvania's 181st district. He is our guest today. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Man, I'm excited for this because this is this person really is the epitome for us of our not only our generation next, but our generation now. Um, Representative Malcolm Kenyatta, who was the U.S. Representative from Pennsylvania's uh, 181st District. And, you know, um, Malcolm Kenyatta is a community activist and American politician from North Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who currently serves as a state representative for the 181st District in the Pennsylvania General Assembly. Kenyatta is the first openly LGBT person of color and one of the youngest members elected to the Pennsylvania General Assembly. He currently serves as vice chair of the Philadelphia delegation and as a member of the governor's task force on suicide prevention and a host of committee, host of just a number of committee leadership position. As a legislator, he has championed proposals to address generational poverty, raise the minimum wage, protect workers' rights, increase access to mental health care, common sense measures to address gun violence and protect our digital infrastructure. Man, Representative Kenyatta, man, how are you? How you doing? Man, I'm, take, I'm taking, it a day, taking it a day at a time like everybody else. This has been, um, you know, a tough year for a lot of people. But yeah. I think, um, you know, part of what, and I know we'll, we'll dig into some of this in our conversation, you know, but a, but a part of what has happened with, with COVID is COVID didn't create um, the disparities that exist, um, but it has really pulled uh, the Band-Aid off of some mm -hmm. of the things in terms of the structural challenges that exist, um, the structural inequality, uh, you know, that is present with communities of color. It has really exposed it. And, you know, we're now in a position where I hope, where I hope more and more people um, are ready to have the tough conversations and, and do the hard work um, to address some of these things. Yeah, no, and, and we will get into that. And welcome to the coolest show. Uh, That's right. You know, That's right. The spot where we discuss both climate justice and racial justice, because racial justice is climate justice. So, man, we are excited to have you on. Before we get into all of that, and I want to really, I, I mean, I need you to be breaking it down for us. I know you will. But I want to actually people to know who we talking to. So from your heart, not not the politician, not not, not the activist, not the uh, the orator, <laughs> all those awesome things that make you. But just in your heart, your wins and your losses. Who is Malcolm Kenyatta? You know what? I, I like to say, you know, I'm just I'm just, I'm just a poor black gay kid from North Philly. Um, and, I, and, I, and I say that that way and I say it often um, because, you know, where we've sat at a variety of different tables really impacts the way we look at what's being served. Um, and so, you know, I grew up like a lot of folks um, feeling like because of the different things that I embodied um, that this wasn't a country. 
that really saw or represented me. That when I looked at government, TV, um, you know, you just go down the list. It was so rare that I saw myself, so rare that I saw somebody who understood what it means to live in a working poor family where mom and dad are out there doing what they doing what they can. Um, but, you know, they're on that treadmill of poverty where no matter how many hours you work, um, you can't seem to get out from up under it. Um, from the perspective of having an identity where simply because of who I love and how I identify that I'm going to meet barriers and meet people who, you know, ask, <laughs> you know, in some cases, some really absurd questions, um, you know, and treat you, you know, with a lack of respect and, and, and dignity simply because of who you are. Um, you know, and I'm somebody who understands what it means to, you know, be black and brown in this country um, and the barriers that are, that are thrown up simply because of who you are. But I'll end with this. I also know the joy of what it means to grow up in a community like North Philly, where despite all those challenges, the multitude of, multitude of which um, I'm sure we'll talk about and some of which I just listed, I grew up with people that in their heart understand joy and resilience. And, you know, it really wasn't until, I mean, I'll be honest, it really wasn't until I got to college um, even though I went to a university in my community, wasn't really until I got to college that I really recognized, like, we was poor. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. everybody in the neighborhood, you know, was the same. <laughs> it was all sort of, you know, hustling and struggling. And then, you know, I had a lot of opportunities yeah. that allowed me to see more clearly um, mm. the real disparities, you know, that existed. You know, my colleagues or, you know, my other students, you know, they're going to buy their books for $200, $300 a pop. And I'm like, um, can we go to the library and like copy a couple of those pages? Because I don't got two hundred dollars, uh, you know, to to to, to buy a book. You know, I'm just I understand here. that I'm just definitely. Um, and so, you know, I just say all that to say, having those different intersections. Uh, my 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 partner, Doctor Doctor Matt. You know, he always says that you know we have triple consciousness, um, and we're cognizant in different ways. Um, of the different ways um, intersectionality plays out in our lives. And that led me um, to really get engaged in, in, in public service um, and led me to, um, you know, really want to be a part of not only being frustrated with what was going on, but be a part of really a solutions-oriented approach that says we're going to address some of these things because it doesn't have to be the way it is. That's right. No, thank you for that. And thank you for, I mean, your, your courage and for this and for, because I know, you know, we, 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 we all in our community, we get tired of the first, right? We get tired of the, we, we don't want to, people think that we man. like to hear. People you, think you we preach like to hear. man. I'm like, I yeah, want to no, get it, to a point where that's not exciting anymore. Yeah, you know, no, I'm not, I'm not, about. yeah. That's not like, man, it's not what I'm, not what we're looking for. We're not, we're not, because it's the case means that something went horribly wrong 15, 20, 30 years ago. That, that's what that, or 100 years ago. Something went really wrong, but, but thank you for that. I mean, and, and, and in that, um, as you're the first openly LGBTQ plus person of color and one of the youngest members elected for uh, the Presidential General Assembly, um, really what's your experience and utilizing uh, those identities to help shape your legislation, but also, you know, how you can see how that also has you in a position where you got to just, you got to be on your game so much more, if you know what I mean. Like, you can't, like, you can't um, take a day, you can't take a day off, so to speak, because people go, say, ah, look, see, look, in a, but now you got to be on point. You know what? I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to push back in this way. I, 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 I sort of reject some of that. I reject this sort of, you know, model minority viewpoint that to be here, you know, there are a lot of average <laughs> white guys who Fetch. are in a bunch of positions of, of, of authority. I do think that, you know, I had a really tough black mama that expected and demanded excellence um, mm. that put me in a position where working hard is, is second nature. It's, it's what I do. It's how I was raised. And so I do that. But 
I really try to make sure I'm constantly sort of checking myself to make sure that that hard work is not being generated because I'm worried about the white gaze and I'm worried about what a, a, you know, a white person's going to have to say about my work ethic or about my credentials. I remember when I thought about running for office, um, my partner was still living in, uh, still living in, in LA. Um, and I like to say to him, you know, I saved him from all the fun parties of LA. But <laughs> and wildfires. And wildfires. Well, well, you know, that's, that's a part of what, you know, what, what we'll talk about. Um, but, um, but, you know, I, I, was, I was sitting, uh, sitting at his apartment um, you know, my mom had passed not too long um, before, um, and there was an election coming up in a couple of months, and we were sitting there talking about it, and I went through all these lists of things that I thought disqualified me from running. Mm. And then I recognized that all those things actually qualified me more than I knew, because when I walk into these committee hearings, and particularly for the young people who are going to watch this show, um, and also you know, statistically for the women who are going to watch this show, because we know statistically that women less are less likely to raise their hands, um, to seek higher office, to apply for that raise, to, to fight for that promotion. And I think a little bit less so statistically, folks who are people of color, folks who are, who are poor. And as I started going through that list, I recognized all those things I thought disqualified me actually qualified me. And when I'm in these spaces, I recognize that these people aren't that smart. They aren't that great. Um, and if anything, they are lacking a lot of the perspective that makes good policy. And so to the extent mm, that mm-hmm. my sexual identity even matters, and I don't think it does, to the extent that it matters, it makes me more empathetic. And I think empathetic people make better policy because not only are you cautious about how policy impacts marginalized groups, but you're also asking the question of whose viewpoints are not even in this room. Because what so often happens, we all get, you know, we all rally and get fired up when people are proposing things that are directly antagonistic against communities of color, against marginalized people more broadly. But what I found more often is that we are completely ignored We're not even a part of the conversation. Our lived experiences didn't even come up. They didn't even think to discriminate against us because they don't think we are even worth being thought of or being centered in the the policy decisions that are being made. And so that Mm. is what I found more than anything else. You know, and I'll I'll just end with this last point, Rev, because I have a lot of people who say... um, you know, are you're, you're young and, and have you, you know, experienced sort of, you know, discrimination based on your age. And I, and I certainly have had people who have tried. Um, I'll never forget when I first came in and somebody talked about how young I was and they weren't saying it as a compliment. Um, you know, and my response to them was, you know, I am very young and it took me, uh, uh, you know, a lot sooner. I got here a lot quicker than you did, basically. I said mm. some version of that. <laughs> and so, you know, I see it really as an asset. Yeah. No, 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 it, and and it is, it is, and I'm glad that one, you had a strong mama. Thank you, thank her for that. That's right. And two, thank you for looking at that list and saying that you are more than qualified. Um, and because it definitely shows that you know, I know for your district and around the world, we we need more leaders like yourself. Let me ask you a question about two things. I want you to merge them together. What's your viewpoint now? of the state of black America and also the state of the environment in America. And then those two things combined. Yeah, I think that, um, first of all, it's a really good question. Um, I think that we're in a position right now where really the, as we think about the climate uh, emergency, um, we really need to think about the fact that that's not going to be felt equally. Um, uh, it, it's really not. It's going to be folks. Sorry, I muted for one second. I had a phone ringing. Um, <laughs> but, but this is, you know, one, one of the things that I really recognize is that when we talk about the climate emergency, it is communities of color that are first and most impacted. It's mm-hmm. in our neighborhoods where we're seeing the spikes of, um, of asthma among our young people and asthma attacks that are actually leading to hospital, hospitalization. 
It's in our communities um, where when there are the, the wildfires and when there are the hurricanes and the floods that come, it's our communities that aren't rebuilt with the same energy um, that we see other communities rebuilt. Yeah. I mean, you go down to parts of New Orleans right now and communities still have not recovered from the impacts Facts. of Hurricane Katrina. You know, folks rushed with, uh, you know, with um, all types of equipment to, to fix downtown New Orleans. Um, but there was not the same commitment to go into some of the wards that are primarily black and brown and do the same thing. And so we know that the, the, the state of our communities um, has been troubled for a while because of the historic and intentional um, disinvestment in communities uh, that have mostly black and brown or, or, or poor white folks, too, um, because you know, there's a lot of push by the Republican Party, I think, to try to separate, um, you know, poor white people um, from folks who they really should be standing in solidarity with in black and brown communities um, as well. Um, because a lot of the things I just mentioned also is true in, in, in their communities. Because mm -hmm. when we think about the fires that are happening right now in, in the, in the, all across California and Oregon, um, and we think about the loggers and the, and the farmers and all those folks who've lost their land forever. If you're a family farm owner, you, you might not ever get that back. No. If you, you know, run Purdue or some major ad company, you'll be okay. And so we really are in a state right now where we have to address uh, the, the sort of multiplicity of the challenges that exist and be cognizant of how the, the systematic stuff that has caused some of the disenfranchisement is only going to be exacerbated by the climate emergency. No, definitely. I guess in, in that, let's speak to folks you, re you represent in North Philadelphia. Um, climate change is a civil rights issue. We have a right to clean air. We have a right to clean water. Um, but sometimes, I'm sure you know, people in our communities, because this has been kind of seen as a predominantly white movement, they don't connect the dots, and we have to do that. So how do you ensure that folks in your community understand the importance of not only just the climate crisis, but also pollution um, in, in their communities as well? You know what, that, 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 is, a, that is a good, a good question. Um, but, but, but Rev, I, I want to push back gently on the premise a little bit. Yeah. I think the big greens have to do more to really connect the dots and communities of color. If you look at some of the statistics of folks that work at some of the biggest environmental groups, you know, I respect those groups. I work with those groups. But yeah. it's not a lot of people that look like me that are there. I think some of the last statistics I saw, only 2% of That's senior right. leaders at, um, you know, some of the biggest environmental uh, organizations are, are, are black. And so I think a part of what's getting lost in translation um, is, 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 is really how people talk about these issues, not whether or not they are talking about these issues. Mm -hmm. People in my community are talking about the, the asthma crisis. They are talking about the fact that, you know, consistently uh, big, big polluters. And, uh, you know, you think about, you know, waste, waste from, you know, waste treatment to um, just how we look at the quality of life in our communities from the trash to the lack of trees, all those different things. Folks in my community are talking about those issues, but they're not calling them environmental issues. And mm. I think environmental groups aren't always as adept at hearing what folks in communities of color are saying and then connecting what they're saying to the work that they're doing. And that happens a lot in any big organization where we start to use jargon and, um, and, and slogans and, you know, three point plans when people in the communities are just talking about their lived experience and they don't, they're, they're not necessarily connecting it in that way. And so what I've tried to do is really try to be a matchmaker working with some of the groups to say, they care about this, you care about this. Now we need to really take the conversations that are being had and get those conversations on the same 
on the same wavelength. And a part of how that's going to happen quicker is that we also have to be honest with ourselves, honest about our movement and say that more black and brown folks, we need more, you know, revs like you and and shows like yours um, elevated um, as the face of this of this movement um, and not just the face but also in terms of shifting the culture of these organizations yeah. so they're able to make sure their programming um, the things that they do really speaks to and speaks um, in concordance with what folks are saying on the ground mm. well thank you for that and for those who are listening who think that I somehow may, I may have pre Tempted <laughs> Malcolm on his statements. We had what he just said was was completely from his heart. I just was I'm gleeful because obviously for me that is the tune I've been singing singing, and I know that will help us to win. And I and I don't I haven't been singing that tune. I mean obviously, as you know, I'm on the board of Green 2.0, which has been literally putting out pamphlets upon pamphlets about that data and studies about how we can expand. Um, the, the the larger big green movement, and so um, and I and listen, I, I no shame now. I want people to go to Green 2.0 and other entities um, like the Hip Hop Caucus or other folks that are doing this great work um, from the community of color. NWCP. I mean, this is just too long to get into, um, but I just want to say that one thing you said there that's so important is about representation, but also about ownership. Um, in essence. And I think that the more that we understand how this is our issue, the more the, 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 the more that we can, and the more that we can connect the dots. Um, you know, Audre Lorde said this, and she said it, and it was very powerful. There is no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. So, as you talk about the meaning of what environmentalism and other isms, obviously, uh, West, how do we how do we break down those silos? And particularly from you, from a policy standpoint, how do you also connect the dots so you can fight different things together? So if it's police um, brutality, if it's pollution, if it's the pandemic, if it's whatever it may be, um, how do you connect those dots so that you can create legislation to, for your community and for others around? Um, not only your the state, the great state of Pennsylvania. So, so let me just say, I'm, I'm, I'm really. Well, I was happy to be on this show, um, any, anyway, because you know, I, I know, I know of your work. I know of what Green 2.0 is doing, and uh, but, but when you start quoting Audre Lorde, one of my favorite poets, um, then, then you're gonna get me real, real excited. No, um, no, we so, both, so, we so together. No, definitely. Come on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and so, and so, so, so let me say this. This this is about, you know, and Do, Do, Dr. King also talked about um, winning, winning the battles for hearts and minds. And I think, mm-hmm. I think a part of this is within our own progressive forward-looking movement, there's a battle for hearts and minds that we have to have internally. And we have to also be able to have hard conversations with each other because here's, here's the reality. We don't always show up for each other as much as we should across mm. issue. Um, there are folks who say, you know, my issue is expanding voting, um, but somebody's having a rally about criminal justice, and you might say, oh, well, that's not my thing, so my organization doesn't need to be involved in that. Or you have folks who are showing up to the, to, to, to the women's march, um, but aren't showing up when Black women are talking about pay equity. Yep. You know, you have people who are maybe showing up for environmental um, justice, but aren't as keen to show up when um, uh, you know folks in the, in the labor movement are saying we want to get hazard pay and, and, and other things. And I'm not saying it's not happening because we can you know find many a movement um, where we have. But I think that it's easy for us to say this is the thing that I'm really passionate about. This is where my organization is going to focus its limited resources because that's a part of the challenge. A lot of these organizations operate on shoestrings budgets, people doing it out of the love of their goodness of their, of their heart. Mm-hmm. But we have to recognize that systems of injustice don't work separately. That's they right. work in tandem. 
Um, And one of my one of my idols and I've not been able to connect with him yet. But if you can connect us, Rev, please do. Reverend Barber is just one of my idols and what he's doing with the Poor People's Campaign um, is, is just one of my favorite things happening right now. But he said something here in Philadelphia right after the 2016 um, election. He said that if the, if the racists and the folks who want to disenfranchise folks, if the people who want to see more people in jail, not less, if the folks who want to uh, prohibit a woman's right to have autonomy over her body, if they can all be cynical enough to work together, we better be smart enough to work together. And I think that that's absolutely true. Um, and what, you know, Sister Audrey was talking about there was not only the intersections that we embody personally, but mm-hmm. also I think the intersections of, 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 of our movement, because we're not gonna be able to deal with issues of whiteness without also dealing with issues of misogyny, with also dealing with issues of homophobia, with also dealings with um, you know, issues of, of, of greed, right? These things work in tandem, they support each other, and we have to be um, just as cognizant about supporting each other and about making sure that we're centering the people who are feeling the pain first and most. No, definitely. Well, first, Reverend Barber is my dear, dear, dear friend, and I will definitely connect you. Uh, you should definitely... Yeah, you see, should, you got you to ask, right? You ask not... Yeah, you no, ask not, you, you ask not, you, you ask not, yeah. So there you go. And so that's that, that, that's, a, that's an easy one. That's a, that's, and he is an amazing brother. I can tell you someone who's close to him. He is, he is who he is inside and out. And so he's phenomenal. Um, and his love for our people is great. Um, I want to go further on what you're saying now as you break down these silos. I think it's important because I think people hear that, what you just said, about how we need to break down the silos, how we need to connect the dots, how we need to ensure that if folks are marching in essence or demonstrating that we are there with them, or we're helping to create legislation because the enemy of these is sometimes the same enemy. And we see that. That's not that's that far off. But do you think that's either intentional, um, maybe because of privilege, community? Um, do you think it's it's because of foundations? Because maybe they don't want groups to have quote unquote missing drift. They don't want you to, they don't want you to go through certain things. Or do you think it's simply because we are just so, as you mentioned, stretched thin. And we can't see ourselves adding, man, I know immigration is important. I know we should promote abolishing ICE, but I can't get, oh man, that police brutality rally. Which, which one of those do you think it is? Or you think it just is none of those and we just got to figure it out because we all in this together? You know, I think I think it's option E. I think it's all of the above. Um, yeah. I think all of those things are are, are true. Um, but I also think that those who walk into spaces with certain privileges that they didn't ask for, but that they have, um, of being white, of maybe being well off and well, well connected. Um, sometimes folks have the luxury of just focusing on, on one issue because, uh, you know, a part of the, you know, listen, I've, I've, let, let, let me step back to, I'm sorry. Um, let, 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 me, let me step back to, to, to answer it this way. A, a part of what I say to folks in our movement as well is that when we talk about one of the challenges between environmental justice and so often jobs, right? Mm-hmm. We find labor sometimes and environmental folks, we, we, we're not working together. Um, and, you know, what I say to folks is for black and brown folks, for folks who live on the margins, you are so often met with Faustian bargains. You know, do you want your arm today or your leg today? You know, mm. <laughs> you know, do, do you want to be able, you know, do you not want to get cancer? But also, do you want to be able to feed your, your kids today with a, with, with a job? I mean, you think about our service workers during COVID-19. Are you yeah. going to go and show up at that grocery store where you could get sick and maybe get others in your, in your home sick? Or are you going to stay home and not be sure whether or not you'll be able to get unemployment? And so... What I will say is that all those things you said are right, but I do believe that particularly for folks who are most marginalized, there is a level of empathy 
that our allies need to bring to this work to recognize that folks are juggling a bunch of different things that are all important to the quality of life that they're living. And so that, that's why I was saying, you know, about um, when I was talking about us not using the same language. You know, I hear mm-hmm. folks say, well, you know, black people never show up for environmental stuff. You know, but no, they, they, they are showing up, but they might not be showing up in the way, they not, might not be showing up to your rally or to your event, but they're showing up to things, speaking about some of these concerns. And so the issue becomes, how can, again, how can we make sure we're supporting one another and that we're showing up even when we don't think our particular organization's mission is going to be centered in that moment? Because it might be, it just might not be in the way, you know, might not be the, you know, the rally or the action that you would have organized. Um, but what the folks are calling for, um, there might be more intersection, more overlap than we think. No, definitely. That's a great response. No, thank you for that. With the uprisings this past summer, um, people have sounded the alarm to bring the attention to the murders of Black trans women, people of color, and transgender people who are most often victims of hate violence, according to the 2017 report from the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs. In 2017, 71% of victims were people of color. 52% were transgender, and 40% were transgender women of color. So how can we raise awareness and be more supportive of the Black LGBTQ plus folks in in, in our community? You know, I think that that's that's exactly right, you know, and I'll expand on what, what, what I just said a second ago. There's sometimes folks who are, you know, allies in the struggle for Black lives, who will, let, let, let me go back and answer this way. And I'll, I'll tell it through, the, through, through, through a story. No, and so when I first ran for, uh, for, for office, there were some stakeholders, who I'll never forget, they said, well, you know, Malcolm's involved in a lot of stuff around the LGBTQ community. And so they said, I, you know, I wonder if he's going to be too center city focused if, if, if he's elected. Which, which meant too focused on the, on the neighborhood, on gay issues, as if when I go home to North Philly, my being LGBTQ is no longer relevant. Um, when the reality is, you look at the statistics you just brought out, they're deeply relevant. When we think about how systems of injustice work, the further you get away from being a white, straight, landowning, Protestant male in this country, um, the further away you are from power in this country. And so when we think about the experience of Black trans women in particular, you know, the Black trans uh, survey from 2015 said the average annual income for Black trans women was under $10,000. And then many of our our, our sisters are forced into survival sex work and, 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 and other things. And so if we care about Black bodies and we care about Black lives, Um, we need to show up for the most marginal within our Black roots. Um, Because it wasn't just until a couple of weeks ago where the governor signed some bills that that we got passed around criminal justice reform and police reform. It wasn't until a couple of weeks ago that police having sex with folks who are in their custody was just made illegal in Pennsylvania. Let that sink in. The police could arrest you And it is perfectly fine for them to engage in sexual activity with you and that not be categorized as what it is, um, you know, rape or sexual exploitation. And so I I bring that up because it's a lot of our trans folks, particularly our trans folks who have to um, participate in survival sex work, who have told me gut-wrenching stories of being stopped by an officer that didn't just, um, you know, that wasn't just arresting them because they they wanted to... uh, because they cared about the letter of the law, um, but they were arresting them because that officer, you know, wanted to, um, wanted one of their services. Um, and they're in a position where, you know, is the NAACP going to show up for them when they're sexually harassed by police in the same way they will um, when, when, a, when a black man is, is, is murdered by police? And let's also be, be candid and say, do we show up for black women? in the same way. I mean, Breonna Taylor's murderers still are on the loose. 
still to this day. We still don't have justice for, 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 for Sandra Bland. And so we have to be clear that these systems of, of misogyny, these systems of homophobia, these systems of racism, we're not immune to them. You know, as a man, as somebody who identifies as a man, there are blind spots that I have to ca- constantly catch myself. And, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Am I, am I centering, you know, my sisters in this moment? Or is some of those things that I've been learned and told about what it means to be a man over and over again, has that sort of come into play? And so we have to constantly be checking ourselves and make sure that we're very clear. If we care about Black people, we truly care about Black people. We have to care about the Black people that so often the Black community ignores. And, you know, I I was ordained in my church as a minister at 13, and I left the church for many years because I did not feel seen in the faith community. And I've come back, um, you know, to church, and I'm so happy to have um, my pastor, Reverend Leslie Callahan, um, a pastor and a congregation that is affirming um, and and uplifting um, and that recognizes um, the intersectionality of our struggle. But we need to be very clear that as we talk about the fight for justice, the fight for Black people, that so often Black and Brown queer people have been pushed to the curb, even though we've always shown up for Black straight folks. You know, Bayard, he he organized that march on Washington. And then then was told, you know, he couldn't speak, right? And so we have to be, we have to be real. Yeah. No, not only couldn't speak, but also really couldn't be a part. Yeah, he couldn't be the dance. They're like, go over there. Thank you for organizing this, but go over there. And organize, yeah, did all this organizing, and no, it's 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 absolutely crazy. Um, No, thank you for that. What you just said was very powerful, and I think very important. I actually want to just want to take another piece of what you just said. Um, Go go into where we are now. Um, Our our movement, our twenty first century movement, um, for not only for this. Black lives, but just for the movement for the struggle for Black people and our empowerment um, is different. I, I, I find it to be very encouraging that we, as you mentioned, we have our leadership. We have more. We have definitely more women who are leading our yes. movement. Very powerful. We our, our movement for some of us at least is more open to Black, uh, gay, and queer people to be also not to be leading. But there's also some pieces there where it can still be very patriarchal, where it can still be, you know, the, the, the old boys network. Um, oh. And so talk about as you're now, as you're seeing the evolution of our movement in the 21st century, are you encouraged by it? What do you see as our strengths? And what do you see as some of the things that we still got to fix? You know, you know that's that, that that's that's a really good question. Um, you know, I'm I'm always very cognizant of the fact that as we talk about a movement for justice and freedom and liberation for all of our people, we have to be very sure that we don't end up wearing the master's clothes, mm. um, and that we don't end up recreating within our systems of liberation some of the same systems of oppression that have existed. And I, you know, just talked about that in some detail in terms of how black queer people are often, um, you know, often told by folks that, Oh, all you care about is your sexuality or something as if my queerness makes me immune to white supremacy. I promise you it does not. (laughs) Um, um, You know, when we think about the movement for black lives and black lives matter, black queer women, um, were some of the folks that started that. Um, and I don't think they're often, or as often as I think they should, um, you know, given, given the due that, that, that they deserve. And we think about folks like Brittany and Angela and so many others who've been on the forefront of this. And, you know, it is happening more. It's always, change always comes more slowly than we need it to come. Because for the Black trans women who are being murdered right now at historic rates, um, It's a crisis, and it's a crisis Mm -hmm. that we need to address right now. I mean, I still haven't gotten over the fact that Dominique, who was killed here in Philly, murdered and dismembered, her body thrown into the river, and 
you know, many of us spoke out and, you know, you know, there were rallies held, but we didn't fill up this city the way we have when other acts of violence happen. We didn't. That's just the reality. That did not happen. And it, and it, and it, and it hurts. It hurts. Um, but, but this is why, um, this is, this is why I'm hopeful. I don't believe we walk away from broken systems. I don't believe we do. I believe we have a responsibility um, and I believe we have the power to, 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 to fix those systems. I don't think Cory Booker was the first person to say it, but he said it a lot during his presidential run and I, and I really liked it. He said, um, if America hasn't broken your heart, you don't love her enough. Mm. Um, and this country has broken my heart. But I stay engaged in this movement and in this work and in this fight because I truly do believe that all the things that we say about ourselves, that we've said about ourselves as a country, many of them written right here in Philadelphia, I do believe that it's in this generation where we can make sure that those words actually freaking mean something. That they're not just words, but that we actually look at the definitions and put those definitions of those words into practice. That we're not just the land where folks are created equally and endowed with their creator with such inalienable rights, but that we are a place where we're treated equally and where those inalienable rights are not abridged irrespective of the color of your skin or who you love or how you worship or don't worship, that in this country, we don't just say good things about ourselves, but we actually try to do good things. Um, I believe this is the generation because I don't want to have the same conversation I had with my uh, grandma, uh, I believe it was last year. Um, she called and we were talking about some of the stuff that was happening. And, you know, she was on the verge of tears. You know, my grandfather was a civil rights activist, Mama Kenyatta, and his, his wife, my grandmom, you know, she was also involved in this work, supporting what he's doing and doing her own stuff. Um, she was on the verge of tears and she said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I thought we had fixed a lot of this stuff. Mm. And she said, and here you are fighting the same fights that I spent so many years fighting. I don't want to have that conversation with my grandkids. Don't. And I'm going to do everything in my power. And I know so many people in this movement are doing everything they can every single day to make sure we don't have to have those kinds of conversations. Hmm. Powerful, powerful. You know, you just went recent, recently, you know, you just went viral. I'm sure you know that uh, everybody was. <laughs> somebody told just, me. Somebody told nah, me. <laughs> nah, I'll tell you. I'm sure your, I'm sure your likes and so it was just going tick 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 tick. It was just going through the roof. Yeah, my partner's uh, like, it's ten o'clock. Get your phone out of here. Yeah, no, nah, because <laughs> go, go to but, bed. <laughs> but no, nah, but it was because of that viral video of you speaking, obviously, to your fellow Pennsylvania lawmakers about how voter suppression should be a bipartisan issue. So I guess with that. Looking back on not only that speech, which we'll probably will play for folks who haven't heard that, but how was voter suppression taking place today, particularly as we get close to this upcoming election, and particularly why should it be either bipartisan or postpartisan? I like I like this idea of postpartisan, Rev. That's 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 good. Um, you, you save, save that for Sunday. I know I know you did it here, but that's that's good. Um, <laughs> wow, I'm gonna be uh, chewing on that for a while. But, but let, let let me say this. We can't be spectators to our democracy. Hmm. We can't be spectators. Um, I believe it was after World War II um, that it was said that the price of peace is vigilance. And I think the price of democracy is stewardship. It requires something of us. Requires something of us. And I think too many of us see our democracy as a reality TV show and we hope our favorite characters win or, you know, come out on top. But if we're going to have a democracy, it is going to require that we in fact have a system where every single person not only can vote, but does vote. 
Because if we look at the last election, you know, everybody talks about Donald Trump and Hillary and what happened. Mm-hmm. But the person who won the election was no one. If no one was a candidate, no one would have gotten 400 electoral votes. No one would be in the White House right now, which might be better than Donald Trump, to be honest. But, but that is a part of the concern. And I think, you know, we just look at, we just had a lawsuit uh, here in Pennsylvania um, based off of what I was talking about in that video. And the Supreme Court ruled that the drop boxes will be authorized and are legal, that votes will be counted as long as they're postmarked on Election Day up to three days after and some other things that we were fighting for. And I was looking at a lot of the press around the, around the Supreme Court decision. And a lot of the headlines were Democrats win, Democrats win. It's not about Democrats winning. It's not about Democrats winning. Our democracy has to be about all of us, whether you're independent, right. Democrat, Republican, right. being able to vote. And it should really turn people's stomachs that it's only Democrats who are standing up for the right to have everybody's vote counted. And, you know, this is something I've been chewing on for a while, but I think we need to be honest that I'm not sure people want everybody to vote, even some Democrats. I think Mm. people want the people who support them to vote. (laughs) Mm. They want to make sure that, that a majority of people who vote support them, as opposed to everybody's voice being heard. And let me tell you why I've been thinking about that and why I feel so emphatically about it. We are seeing Western democracies fall like dominoes across the Western world. We're seeing it in Poland, where they've created no gay zones and all types of other ridiculous nonsense across Poland. We saw it in Turkey, where journalists are being beheaded and decapitated, where news media is not not even able to report free and fair Uh, you know, on both sides, just report the facts. We see it in the Philippines where they are literally using the government to to, to shoot people down in some type of awful dystopic reality. We're seeing it in Brazil where the president right now in Brazil is cutting up the rainforests uh, across the Amazon, which are literally the lungs of this planet. Um, to build more houses, um, more farmland, um, and to make a profit. All of this is happening in countries that just five years ago, we would have said are democracies just as secure as ours. And they're not anymore. Mm -mm. And if we are not careful, if we are not careful, we won't have a democracy. We won't have one. No, I mean that's 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 where we are headed. I mean, there are some who would who who would say from many of those in our community that you know this this democracy has always been troubled before, and even at now it's becoming even more troubled and 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 putting more of us at risk because we know that. Well, that's for sure. I mean, we've been rolling with a couple of blown out tires, but we've been rolling. <laughs> Um, yeah, but I think we're at a, we're at a, a weird spot where this whole thing might be re- repossessed. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that, those are two very good analogies <laughs> that I know and I understand and seen too well. Uh, Representative, can you ask you really got two more? One is kind of on the follow on the kind of yeah. on the climate. What's what's happening in regards to climate in far as with the this on the state level side. I mean, what 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 uh, is the Green New Deal, Pennsylvania version? Is that emerging? Is another version of that emerging? How are you dealing with particularly Pennsylvania and in Philadelphia with the chemical and the environmental justice issues? How are you dealing with the issues of fracking, um, pipelines? I mean, how is the climate conversation happening on that legislator legislation level? So we're in a position right now where I think one of the greatest challenges we face is that organized labor and folks in the climate movement are not working together. And I think that's incredibly unfortunate. It's unfortunate for this way. Folks in organized labor are worried about good union jobs. There are a bunch of good union jobs that can come from doing the right thing by our environment. Um, You know, the the number one 
uh, growing job right now before the pandemic was a solar panel installer, number one job. But a lot of those jobs are not unionized, and we need to make sure that the folks who are doing that work are. Um, in Western PA, we need to deal with the reality that there are a lot of people, when they hear us talking about fracking, um, you know, and I've had real conversations with some of these labor folks. They know, you know, they work there and their health is most at risk by being there and being around those chemicals and um, incredibly worried. Just like when we think about folks in coal country, you know, and black lung and how the government has completely ignored those families who've been down there in a deep, dark hole, um, pulling out coal for us to power our homes and everything else. And so I think one of the big challenges and one of the real areas of opportunity is for us to really create a blue-green coalition that recognizes, just like we were talking about intersections, that recognizes that we can have good jobs that don't destroy our planet. We need to get to a place um, where we're not f- fracking every, everywhere you look um, because, A, that's not sustainable, um, and B, a lot of those jobs um, are jobs that, again, come with a lot of health risks that we need to really educate people about and hold some of these companies accountable to um, because we have seen some of these pipelines breaking. We just had one in Chester County where the, yeah. the, the court told them they had to stop. And, and this is the sick part of it. These companies know. They have the data. They're not surprised when this stuff happens. They know, but won't give us, um, the public and the folks who are their workers, won't even give many of them the information for them to make uh, the best choices about, about, their, about their health. And so we're, we're continuing to push back against some of the worst, but you know, this is the only hockey metaphor I have um, because I don't know much about hockey. But right now, because we're <laughs> in the minority, so often folks who care about climate, which is mostly Democrats, unfortunately, but again, this shouldn't be a partisan issue either. I didn't think being able to breathe the air and drink the water was partisan, but unfortunately it is. Um, more often than not, we are goalies. We're just blocking stuff. We're not really able to advance the type of bold legislation that lays out for people what a just transition would look like. Would look like. Um, we're not having the. We're not doing the types of things that I'm introducing legislation on very soon um, that would put in statute our Office of Environmental Justice and then allow that office to weigh in on permitting decisions, as we see in in, in other states. So those folks can say, hey, you already put six waste treatment plants plants, in, you know, in this community. You also can't come through here with another darn pipeline um, after this community has already been devastated, right? And some other states do do that, particularly in California is a good example. And so we're not really able to advance any of those things because of the stranglehold that big oil and gas has had on the state and really the lies that they are so adept at pushing out to people. You know, the lies that folks who care about the environment don't want anybody to have a labor job, which is nonsense. Um, The same folks fighting to protect the environment are the biggest friends of labor. And it's the folks who are pushing the frack wherever you want, drill wherever you want, are the same folks who are bankrolled um, from the Ruta to the Tuta by the Commonwealth Foundation, the Koch brothers, and everybody else who doesn't care about working people. And so we have to um, have the conversations that really break um, the, the uh, alliance that has existed um, between folks who want to destroy our environment um, and, and, and folks who want a good paying job. Um, and I think that requires conversations with workers about a just transition, about what that looks like in practice and how we can make those jobs readily available, make them available quickly. Um, you know, and Vice President Biden has really laid out a plan. You know, AOC and Secretary Kerry worked really hard to put together um, a plan that the vice president is, is pushing. And I'll just, I'll just point out one of these notes, which I think would be huge 
the energy efficiency of our buildings and then doing something about electric cars and putting those charging stations across the country will create hundreds of thousands of good paying jobs. And we know here in Philadelphia in particular that these diesel trucks, these cars, and these energy efficient buildings, these energy inefficient buildings um, are really some of our biggest challenges in terms of um, energy um, and how it's overused and also our environment and our air quality. Um, we know that those are two of the biggest drivers. And, you know, that's why I'm really happy that those two things are really key to Vice President Biden and Senator Harris's plan. No. Well, Representative Kenyatta, two things here. I just want to say that, man, you are amazing. Thank you for your time. And, From your um, mouth to God's ears, man. No, 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 no <laughs> doubt. And you have a friend with the Hip Hop Caucus. So as you begin to build through your community and 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 always look at the hip hop caucus as someone who can help on either from the streets to the suites and definitely as you begin to look at the environmental justice or environmental enterprise or climate adaptation and climate resiliency you know we're definitely you know would love to support and be with you um in that i had just one more question for you really yep. and it's really just kind of just uh the core of who you are um after hearing and folks listening to you now in this conversation, they will have a better idea of you know who you are and what you're trying. They can and they'll see that. But from your perspective, are you would you consider yourself a revolutionary or a solutionary or a combination of both? And what's your vision for the future? You know, I, I don't, I, I hate when like folks who are like political leaders don't, it doesn't sound like they're directly answering a question. And so I'm answering this question really as honestly as I know how to say Most this. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I really, all, 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 all these, all these labels are, are really things that reporters and other folks, it's things that they focus on and then that's, that's their lane. I'm going to let other people focus on, focus on what they want to call me. Um, I'm going to focus on the issues that we just had a good conversation about today. I, I, I don't know. If people want to call me something, they can uh, call me in North Philadelphia and they can call me. They can call me whatever you want. You know, listen, as long as you call me. <laughs> and they say, don't call, me, don't call me late for dinner. That's the only thing you can do. That's right. That's right. But, but in that, I do, I, do, I do think it's important from your standpoint, just that final piece, like this, that, that vision, like what, what is success? I think that for us in the movement, we, yeah. we should say what success looks like. What is success so, so, when you- So from my perspective, you know, I got a lot of people, particularly when I was one of the keynotes at the DNC, who talked about, you know, all, all the first that I embodied by, by the virtue of being on that, that virtual stage. Success for me um, is gonna come may, may, maybe years from now, um, when I get a call or have a conversation with somebody who says, you know what, Malcolm, I didn't ever think I would run for office or ever think I would apply for that job or ever think, you know, I would pursue whatever my passion was. But I looked at you and didn't look at you and say, oh my God, look what Malcolm did, but looked at me and said, oh my gosh, look what I can do. Mm. I think that if we are not building a bench, we are we're, 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 we're part of the problem. You know, I, I do not plan to be in elected office my entire life. Um, I just don't, I don't believe in that. So I'll tell you that. Um, I ain't gonna be elected my, 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 my entire life. And so I think we have to be really uh, focused on building a bench and really focused on not trying to deify people as saying, oh, Malcolm is a, is, is a hero. But, but what good leaders do is recognize, is, is inspire other people to recognize all the ways that they can lead. And that's what I hope to do, to have so many people who are doing the same stuff that I'm doing that people don't even know our individual names. They just see an army of people who come from neighborhoods where nobody expected anything rising up to some of the highest levels of, of influence and, and authority, bringing with them not only 
their beautiful black skin and their queer experiences and their and their and their their youth and their and their age and their perspectives, but also walking and recognizing that this is all about passing the baton. You know, I don't know how long I have. And when I first got elected, I said to my team, you know, as best we know, as best we know, we have 730 days. That's the two years that I knew I had when I was elected for. That's, that's all we really know. Everything else is gravy. And so we're going to work our butts off for the 730 days. And that's how I try to try to look at it. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100% which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. Big 100, big 100.